listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we start a 16-week series called Looking for the True King, where we're going to follow the story of the Old Testament kings as they lead us straight to Jesus. We'll start in Genesis today, but kind of roar through things before we kind of pull the e-break and Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and some of Kings to really get in to these kings who lived and died, but ultimately point us to the true king in our life. So for six years, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. And about 40 minutes south of Louisville, there is a massive cave that's appropriately named Mammoth Cave. Anyone ever been? Yes, all six of you. I'm very, very excited that you've experienced the largest cave system on earth. Hey, 400 miles. It's a big cave. And the ranger kind of takes you down in little groups and they take you through an opening where there's kind of this big door they shut behind you and it gets super dark. And they say to everyone, hey, everyone yell at once. And what happens is predictable. The echoes just go wild. It's so loud. It's like being at a concert. It's all just coming at you and you can't hear anything at all. And then she kind of quiets everyone down and says, hey, what if you even held your breath this time and made no noise at all? And then she kind of pulls like a little kid up from the crowd and says, how about you whisper something? Tell me when your birthday is. The little kid whispers out, my birthday is December 30th or something. And at a whisper in the dead quiet, it echoes around the room as if she said it in everyone's ear and goes round and round and round. See, it's in kind of this quietness that the whisper becomes so clear. And when most people read the Old Testament, it's just a ton of noise. You can't pronounce anything. You don't know where any of these places are, if you're being honest. And usually, we're deeply confused as we plow through a Bible plan. You're 100 chapters in, you're like, I actually don't know what's going on. But we're going to cut some of the noise. It's all important. And we're going to focus down so that we can hear this whisper that God brought through Jesus his true king to earth. That all these stories are looking for a king that is found in Jesus. All the stuff matters but we're going to pull on this theme to help guide us through multiple books of the Bible and highlight how Jesus is God's king. But the idea of God's king actually starts from the very first pages of the Bible. The claim of the Bible is that God creates everything, everything, meaning every atom that exists out of absolutely nothing, something called ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates all that exists, the whole universe, including our planet. And then at Genesis 1:26, he creates humans, separate from plant and animal life, totally distinct. He creates us. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion, rule, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
him. Male and female, he created them. As a human, as someone sitting here with me, you are created in the very image of God. What's that mean? It means you are created to represent God on earth. That you are created to expand God's glory and his goodness and his rule on earth through literally the image of you, your physical body, who you are, your ability to relate to God and others and all these things. But part of it was you are called to have dominion or rule over these things. You are called to be an under king, under the great king of the universe and God. You are called with a purpose to this planet, not to be ruled over by creation, but to care for creation and to expand the Garden of Eden when it was tiny or small or who knows how big it was, but expand it over a somewhat unfinished earth. That that's what the images of God would do. Look as it continues in verse 28. God blessed them, these first humans, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, have babies, have children, expand, have images expanding over the globe. And how many, how many to have? Fill the earth. And there it is again, subdue it, rule, have dominion. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. God blessed them to expand their images all over the globe for his glory and our good as viceroys, as under kings, as literal kings of the earth. That was where God's idea of a king started. But then something terrible happened. Instead of Adam and Eve having good care and authority over these things, creation itself got the better of them. We read in Genesis 3, the snake, the devil himself comes and gets Adam and Eve to doubt God, disobey God, And then suddenly, sin breaks into the world. Suddenly, the world experiences a brokenness that spreads, corrupting every single thing on every place, on every continent. Sin's literally in the air. And it robs humanity of being king again. We lose our ability to be in that role that God wanted us to be to have direct access to the presence of God and then to live from this place at peace with God. But right when sin breaks in, in the midst of the curse due for our sin, God makes an amazing promise to us. And this is where we see God hasn't given up and didn't give up on this idea of humanity being a purpose for kingship. We see in Genesis 3.15, it says this, God tells the snake in the presence of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between the snake, Satan, and the woman, there will always be this war. And between your offspring and her offspring, all the children of Eve will be set against this one, Satan. And one day, he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. And it sounds mysterious until you think about the whole story of the Bible and that this promise will be compounded and compounded and built and built and built. That this is the promise that the true king one day will triumph or crush the very head of the snake. That one day the true king will triumph over Satan. 
both as savior to redeem humanity and king over creation in a very literal sense. God's purposes hadn't ended. God's king was now going to come, but it was going to come of a child of Eve. And it will be this sinless Jesus, this God who became man, who will be struck dead. That is the viper's kiss on the cross to bite his heel. Yet in Jesus' death and resurrection, he will crush the snake, conquer death itself, and pay for our sins to bring us back to the presence of God. And because of this gospel, God will crown Jesus the very king of the universe. He's the second Adam. He is the true king. And that's why Jesus talks about the kingdom of God over and over in the New Testament. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of this. It's because he's the king. And he's bringing his rule and his reign to us that we can have life with God under God's glorious rule again in our life. That's what the gospel does. It brings you back to God. And we see this mysterious promise of Genesis 3.15 develop in Scripture. If you read Genesis 6-11, through you see the earth starts to fill with the images of God, but there's a problem. They love wickedness, not God. So God brings a flood and wipes them out, save Noah and his family. In Genesis 12, there's another man. He's a pagan. He doesn't worship God. But God calls out to this Abram and says, I'm going to make a promise to you. Look what it says. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. So he's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a nation. He's going to bless him. He's going to make his name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless those, and him who dishonors you all curse, and in, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes a mega promise by grace to this man Abraham of a nation, of a land, of fame, to be a blessing that all families of the earth will be blessed through this man's lineage through his descendants. And in Genesis 17, he ups the ante. Verse six, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. God's taking that Genesis 3.15 promise and saying, and it's gonna come through this guy, Abram, a guy who didn't have any children at the time. And he says, through your descendants is gonna come kings and eventually the true king, the one who will bless all the families of the entire earth. This man's probably seen a couple hundred miles in his entire lifetime. He had no sense of what the entire globe would be blessed through his family line. But that was the promise God made. God, by his grace, used Noah to save the human race. God uses Abraham, by grace, to bring this promised land to him, to make him a nation that will bless all people. And these promises continue to his son Isaac. His son Isaac is born. He's miraculously born and given to him and his wife. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And these promises keep coming in their story, but it kind of culminates in Genesis 49, verse 10. It says this. It's at this blessing moment when Jacob is blessing his children. He says this to Judah, one of his kids. The scepter, this symbol of power and authority, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is going to be the one who the ruler comes from. Until tribute comes to him, to him shall be the obedience of people. 
And this is a fancy way. Remember, this is thousands of years ago. A fancy way of saying that the blessing of Jacob to his sons, that Judah, the king, will come from this son. That it narrows the promise once again. It's from Abraham through these sons to a son, Judah, that his tribe, his descendants, will produce the king to rule them all. But the promise is so big that one day King David can't fulfill it. He's not going to bring obedience of all peoples. He's just going to be a great king of Israel. Speaking of Jesus, the one who is bringing in obedience of all peoples, of all places and all times. And we see the story starts coming true. There is a promised land. They do multiply into a great nation. This family becomes 2 million people. But here's the down part of it. They've been enslaved in Egypt. And it lasts four hundred years. That's the story of Exodus, that God hears their prayers, chooses a Moses to deliver his people out from Pharaoh's grasp through the desert and onward to the promised land. The next book, Leviticus, talks about how does God, who is holy, live with sinful people in a tent called the tabernacle, and what are all the rules to live with God? Because God is holy and we are not. The next book, Numbers, dives into what does it mean to get to this promised land? What are the things we have to overcome? And this crazy story happens. These other kings, these pagan kings, try to get a prophet, a pagan prophet, to go curse Israel who's coming to the promised land, to like get up on like a hill mountain and curse down on him, to to drop the pagan voodoo on him. And Balaam's his name, and he gets up there and he says, man... I can't talk except what God has put in my mouth. The true God starts speaking through Balaam and he describes the scene that if you're reading along through the Old Testament, you start to see too. Look what Balaam says in Numbers 23. The promises of God get more specific. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? That's a way of when you walk with 2 million people, you kick up some dust. He's calling out saying, God is made true on this promise. What was one family is now many, many families. Verse 21, the Lord is their God and he is with them. The shout of a king is among them. He's calling out what everyone sees, that God is with them as a pillar of fire by night, a cloud during a day, a tent when they camp out, and they are conquering people after people after people, not because they're mighty, but because their God is with them. And the shout of the king, he's calling out what we start to see, that the true king of God's people, the true king of the earth, it's God. He's the one who saves them out of Egypt. He's the strength that defeats their enemies. He's the king. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt and he is for them like the horns of a wild ox. That's an Old Testament way of saying you mess with the bull, you get the horns. God has fulfilled his promises to Abram and his descendants. He's with them with his presence and he's leading them as king. But then God predicts in the law, the book of Deuteronomy. He predicts that once the nation of Israel, the people of God actually get in the promised land, modern day Israel, when they get there, they're gonna go, man, can we just have like a king like everybody else, God? This is, this is exhausting, having you in a tent and all these rules. Could we, could we just get a human king like everybody else? And God makes a provision for this very thing. Look what it says in 17, Deuteronomy 17. 
It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, the same land that was promised to Abram that's coming true centuries later in fullness, you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And it goes on in Deuteronomy 17 to say this king, if he's a good king, will lead by studying God's word, enjoying it relentlessly, and then leading from this place. Being a person who dwells in the words, the presence of God, and leads from that place is what a good king is. And our series will pick up on that next week as we walk through what happens in Joshua and really what goes so wrong through Judges to set us up for the first kings of this Israel. And we'll come back to Deuteronomy 17. But what this is, church, is called biblical theology. It is tracing one theme through the whole Bible, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden City that Revelation ends with. And we could pull on about 20 themes back and forth across the Bible, home and exile, Covenant, grace, sacrifice, holiness. Bang, bang, bang. We could keep going with them. But we're picking this one. Do you have a favorite sweater that has like a thread kind of hanging on it? I do, and I pick at the thread, and it ruins the sweater. Well, not like that, but kind of like that. We're going to yank on one thread, and we're going to see how it kind of pulls the whole sweater of the Bible into it and points us straight to Jesus. Because Jesus is king, and we pick that theme because our culture hates this message. And I say we've probably internalized a little bit that that's a ridiculous idea too. Our culture is cool with the message of Jesus loves you. Maybe even cool if Jesus saves you from what? Who knows, but sounds good. But the idea that Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord is deeply offensive. Is deeply offensive to say anyone is above me, over me, or in charge. And that is the claim of the Bible. When you start off the Bible, creating everything out of nothing, you do get to proceed to say you're in charge. And God, through his champion, his King Jesus, resurrected from the dead, is very much in charge. And I think for us, it can be tempting to believe the world. It can be tempting to believe our culture says we know what's best for our goals, our lives, our bank accounts, our bodies, our sexuality attached to that body, our relationships, our homes, our story, that we're actually a better author and a better king. And I think that's tempting, whether you've been in Christ your whole life or you're a brand new Christian or you, still, or you don't know the Lord right now. Those are tempting cultural lies to believe. And I want to ask us, citizens, over these next 16 weeks, is Jesus your king? Simply, is Jesus your king? Do you see the king in his beauty and desire his ways over all other things in your life? I want to lay out three ways we can grow with this and that I'm praying for us to grow. The first is that we'd, we'd learn to passionately worship Jesus as the true king of the universe and of our life. We're quick to say, oh, he's king of the universe. That sounds great. Is he king over our life? Is the much bigger question. 
It's learning to see the scriptures are about Jesus as Jesus says they are. In Luke 24 and John 5, that 2 Timothy 3 teaches us that the Old Testament makes us understand our salvation is in Jesus. It leads us to obey Psalm 46, 6 and 7, among others, to wholeheartedly start to affirm this. Look what this tells us. This is what the Psalms tell us to do. Sing praises to the King. To God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For our God is King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. I would love to see God grow each and every one of us in passionate worship of Jesus. Why? Because he's worth it. That we would read this and say, yes, Lord. What is the temperature of your physical worship, of your singing worship? Would you like to go up 10 degrees? Would you like to see 100% more beauty in Jesus to where worshiping him is the only thing that makes sense? Would you see the beauty of the king with me? The second way I think we can grow so we can answer, yes, Jesus is king, is we learn to passionately serve King Jesus, learning from imperfect people. No one gets more detail, more depth, and complexity in the whole Bible than David. They are ripping through generations and centuries and even thousands of years. And then we kind of get to David and they like slam on the brake and say, all right, we're going to get out and walk for the next 10 blocks. We're going to go through some highs, some lows, some strange decision-making, some providential miraculous stuff. But we get to look at what does it look like to follow Jesus? And we get David and we get all of this man. And I want us to look at him and his good, look at him and his bad, look at him and his ugly and say, man, let's not do the bad and the ugly. Let's do the good and let's learn from it all to worship King Jesus. And there are characters like that all over the place in this series. And third, I want us to learn to passionately long for Jesus's return as king, to passionately long for Jesus's return for king. Our culture wants to trick you into longing for political victory, longing for riches, longing for promotions, longing for perfect health, longing for wealth. And I hope these echoes of Jesus make us see that Jesus is king. He's more beautiful than anything that shines or sparkles on Instagram. And that all those things are just not worth worshiping. They could be good gifts to use in service and worship of Jesus, but they're not worth longing for. They're not. And Jesus in this broken world is worth longing for. I hope it lights up your citizens' Bible reading plan. They're in the back if you're new. It clicks when you read the New Testament about King Jesus and you start to love and understand what he's doing more. May we learn to worship the king deeper. May we learn to serve the king with joy. Imagine your life motivated simply on the joy that you get to serve Jesus, not your boss. Your boss just gets a good benefit. But what would it look like to get up and say, I don't serve my customers or my patients or my students. I don't serve my president or or, or my manager, that regional manager who smells weird. I don't serve those people directly. I serve Jesus. And as a byproduct, I respect and honor those around me well. That might just change your whole career. It might change your whole life. May we learn to long for the king, refusing to grow weary, doing good, and give up hope in this weary, weary world. 
Longing doesn't make you apathetic for missions. It doesn't make you apathetic for mercy. It doesn't make you apathetic for justice being denied in this world. Instead, it makes you passionate to move forward and care about those things because you know the end of the story, that Jesus is going to win. And if Jesus wins, that means we can push forward in missions, push forward in mercy and justice and loving our neighbor because Jesus is going to win. And even if we take some L's in this life, it's not the end of the story. We have a king who's coming back for his people because Jesus is king and he brings the presence of God to us and he rules over us for God's glory, but also for our good. The problem with the lies our culture tells you is it puts us in charge and we end up being a tyrant to others and ourselves. We are not sufficiently wise, mature, humble, loving to lead a great life. But Jesus sure is, and he'll change you from the inside out. Jesus will set all things right one day as our second Adam and our true king. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.